0: gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast we are here with the one and only david solomon you may see in the chats more david solomon more david solomon it's people are always saying this to me you know so <laughs> David, uh, for the, the, me-
1: the people people who listen to this podcast are then uh, truly disturbed george if they're saying <laughs> more david solomon
0: or truly informed well, two. I don't
1: know. I've been, I've been <laughs> married to my wife for almost 30 years. And I don't think she's ever said more David Solomon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, this is why I love this podcast. This is fun right here. <laughs> for, the, for the few people that may not have listened to some of the previous stuff, could you, would you be so kind as to reintroduce yourself to them?
1: Sure, sure. Glad to. So I am uh, the director of undergraduate research and creative activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. Um, I've been here for five years. This is my sixth year here. I've been a professor of medieval uh, literature, religion, and culture for uh, almost 30 years, uh, originally from New York City, and um, continue to teach here at uh, Christopher Newport, and uh, my most recent book is on the Seven Deadly Sins. It's a look at the history of sin from the Middle Ages to the contemporary world with a focus on Answering the question of whether or not the whole concept of sin is still uh, relevant today.
0: And for those of you who haven't read the book, what are you doing? It's a beautiful book. I read it myself and I I find it not only informative, but it's rich in footnotes. And sometimes when I see a book like that, it's awesome to go back and understand where you got that stuff from. I think you did a tremendous job documenting all that. So if people are interested, Thank you they should definitely check it out. Yeah, it's a well done. Well, that's the truth. And I think you've hit a milestone at your at your recent adventure, right? Aren't you yeah, five yeah, years just in now? Yeah, I have
1: celebrated five years at this uh, position. So uh, <laughs> it's hard to believe it's been five years already. But uh, I came here to open up this office. They didn't have one. So we've uh, done, done some pretty good work here. So I'm pretty pleased.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I I can imagine the people around you would be pleased. It's a pioneering. And today we are going to get into the wisdom of... The ideas and the background of one D.H. Lawrence, and um, I couldn't think of a better person, a better expert to talk to about it. And um, I'm not even sure where to begin this this idea, except that he embodied. He came from this middle class family at this time where things are beginning to pop off, and you know maybe we could just begin at the beginning.
1: Sure. Yeah. And. And I, I am not going to claim to be an expert on Lawrence by any by any stretch. Um, I mean, my own exposure to to Lawrence began as an undergraduate. We can we can talk about that as well um, because he becomes a a, a fairly um, significant figure. I guess in the book on sin, I I, I I fall back on him quite often because I think he's just got some really brilliant insight. So he is an, a British writer, um, born in eighteen eighty five, as you say, to a, a a fairly middle-class family, uh, a, a working-class family, and um, involved mostly in um, coal mining in the coal world in England. Um, he uh, experienced illness pretty early in his life. He was he was a fairly frail individual and uh, had some uh, serious, serious bout with pneumonia when he was fairly young, which... Um, Back in those days, of course, if you got pneumonia, it meant that you pretty much never shook it, and he never did. Um, and he uh, died in 1930, just shy of his 45th birthday. Um, he had, uh, the pneumonia came back, and and he had uh, some struggles with tuberculosis. Um, but along the way, um, just incredible, incredible literary output. Um, I... Um, was looking at it this morning so that i could quantify it to be honest the first time i've ever done this in his less than 45 years on this planet he wrote 12 novels more than 800 poems at least 12 short story collections four travel books 10 plays and at least 14 nonfiction books in addition to uh two tremendous volumes of letters Um, So that's pretty, pretty impressive. And um, the quality throughout really does sustain. Um, I was drawn to him because of his attitudes towards humanity and his concerns with our losing touch with each other and losing touch with the planet, um, which really just sort of are some of the basic themes that run through, I think, a lot of his work. Um, unfortunately, most people, if they hear Lawrence and they're not familiar with him, only think about Lady Chatterley's Lover and the obscenity um, case in the 1960s, um, but there's a heck of a lot more to Lawrence than than just that one one book, um, which of course ultimately was deemed as not obscene, so there's a landmark case in the 60s. But um, Really interesting, interesting figure,
0: yeah. I, I wanted to ask you this sense of the w- when we talk about his love of the planet or his background there, it seems that there's a thread that runs through his work and it's about the body. I'm wondering if maybe the body might be correlated to the planet. Like I think he, I, I mean, on some of the poems I read, I think you could make that correlation there,
1: sure. yeah. I mean, he he is definitely uh, very interested in the natural world and the connection that we have with the natural world physically um, this is probably most evident in oh my gosh there are long stretches in his life when he uh, traveled um, almost really by foot um, throughout areas of Europe and then eventually uh, settled in Taos, New Mexico uh, it, in, a, in a, a town where the, he bought a 160-acre ranch, which is uh, still there, named uh, the D.H. Lawrence Ranch, and um, was just always close to nature and, 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 and concerned about our increasing disconnect from that i mean remember i mean having been born 1885 he's really just right on the tail on the industrial revolution and seeing the ways in which technology is really changing our relationship with each other and our relationship with the world
0: yeah it's it's amazing to think about in some of like in some of his earlier books like the white peacock And middle class. It it seemed to me from what I read was that it had to do with relationships about his younger days and perhaps that can like I said, perhaps that can be a young man's relationship to himself, to a young lover or to the planet and I'm just curious like do you think that maybe some of the criticisms against him were because he was speaking so much truths about relationships and these may have been taboo or People didn't talk about that kind of stuff. I I know it was a yeah. different time back then, but sure. I wondering if you can expand on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, sexuality is 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 a dominant theme throughout all of his work, and um, that discussing that is something which many people are not comfortable with, especially when we're talking about someone who died in 1930. Um, after his first novel was published, The White Peacock in 1910, his his mother died of cancer. And um that he he had a, a, an incredibly close relationship to his mother, um, which Freudians claim to have been, uh, you know, edible um, in nature. And um, as a result, the the female characters in much of his work, especially the novels, are often read against his autobiography and and against his his excuse me, against his biography and thinking about them as, in the role of his mother, um, and you know, it, 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 it's 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 a mystery. I mean, it, you know, it it makes me think of um, something like Citizen Kane, the film Citizen Kane, where I mean, you know, ultimately, it, it Rosebud. You know, sorry to ruin it for anybody, is the sled. <laughs> um, you know, it, it this connection that we have with those those very early experiences with people and with our family and how those really um, just become part of the fabric of who we are, oftentimes without even being aware of it. Uh, And I think that was probably the case for him as well. I mean, when he finally met um, the woman that he was to share the rest of his life with, Frida, in 1912, um, she was uh, married and had three young children and um, they were together for, I, I think it was about six years before she finally divorced and then they married um, and they had a, 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 very interesting relationship. She, she tolerated a lot. And, um, and she too at points seems to have questioned his sexuality. Um, he would have, Probably been characterized as what we today would call bi curious, um, and so th- there's a lot there, and I think that the, you know, you know, m- m- one critic claims that that one of the dominant um, concerns that Lawrence has is physical touch, mm. um, is and I and I think this is I think this is true. He he's worried that we're losing both the, the the literal and the metaphorical touch with each other. And um that can be, you know, for some people, disturbing because that touch can be sexual. As it yeah. often it work.
0: Yeah, I I I could not agree more with that sentiment. I think that we are losing our idea of touch. I mean, just look at the way in which we're conducting this interview, which is good yeah. in some ways because we can reach across the nation. However, you know, I think we have spoken about the felt presence of the other in some previous, yeah, in some previous podcasts, but what a visionary to be able to see that happening, or maybe, maybe it's just the callousness of the common person to not see it happening,
1: you know? And well, yeah, I, I think so. But I think he's also, largely i mean i I think ultimately reacting to these incredible shifts that were occurring in in the world while he was alive and and what i'm referring to is you know world war one and the 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 shadows of the industrial revolution and the growth in in technology then and then you know by the time he he dies in 1930 i mean you know I, i always have to to go back and look because i I never remember that he died so early um, because so much of what he writes is in reaction to the way that the world is changing Um, you know in 1915 um, and I pulled this out from his his letters um, he wrote to a friend of his so this is 1915 so this is right before World War one he says I want to gather together about 20 souls and sail away from this world of war and squalor and found a little colony where there should be no money, but a sort of communism as far as necessar- necessaries, necessities excuse me, of life go and some real decency, a place where one can live simply, apart from this civilization, with a few other people who are also at peace and happy and live and understand and be free." That's before World War I. So, you know, in many ways he's reacting to this this cultural shift that he sensed was coming. Um and 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 did occur while he was um while he was alive. He
0: yeah, it's if we take it back to the relationship with his mom, I think in a, in another letter to a friend, he had written about the closeness of the relationship with his mom where You know, they could communicate in a way where they didn't even need words. Like it's, you know, exactly what this person wants because you're so similar to them. And then later in some of his later works, it seems like the voice in his books may be a strong representation of Frida. And is that Did I say that right? Yeah. And so it's it's in some ways it's amazing to me, even though the relationships with the women in his life may have been tumultuous. It was those relationships that may have inspired him to write some of the best and clearest perspectives possible from a man you know writing about a woman's perspective. and I think that it's that yeah. touch of, of feminine that may well, have- it's interesting
1: that you say that because uh, there are a lot of a lot of fairly notable critics who would uh, would completely disagree with you and say that he was a misogynist. Um, <laughs> and they, they actually argue that that he that he draws his women in a very misogynist light and and is anything but a feminist. But there is also then a whole other school of thought that argues that he is actually a feminist and he writes strong women. And so I I think it depends on your um, probably your individual perspective, obviously, and your individual take on this. I know when I first read him when I was an undergraduate, I was um, captivated not necessarily by his writing of character but by the language itself his just his, his use of language his his sentences um i think the first thing i read by him may have been the rainbow mm-hmm. um and the rainbow is a novel which taken together with women in love is a, a, basically a kind of a of a um trilogy would be three uh, it, it's 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 two books that really go together. That one continues the next. But um, I remember finishing the Rainbow and um, just absolutely blown away just by the by his use of language. Um, and then you know, looking deeper than looking at the characters because these are family sagas, right? They're looking at at families over long periods of time, and everything that goes along with that and that families go through uh the good and the bad and and much of it very tragic
0: yeah it, when you read the rainbow it, it seems like it's the dreams of the grandmother finally manifesting in the third generation or something along those lines but did you did you in your opinion When you read that, has your idea of him changed since you've read that the first time? And then as you've grown older as a man, has your ideas about him changed?
1: That's a a great question because that is one of the few books that over the course of my life I've gone back to. And and if not reread in total, then picked it up and reread sections at times. And um, has my attitude about Lawrence changed over time? Um, I think, if anything, I've grown more sympathetic with him the more that I that I get to know him. Um, I, I've spent the, the, the last couple of years reading through his letters. Um, I was able to pick up at, at some crazy book sale two, the two volumes of his letters that were, for some reason, they had been discarded, I think, it was a library sale and um i grabbed them and i've been going through them ever since and just underlining things that he said and and phrases and language and i i think i i just have grown more sympathetic with the way that he felt which was in many ways incredibly sorrowful about what was happening to us as a as a species and what was happening to the world around us um, I mean, I, I, I think one of his most brilliant nonfiction works is his last work, a little book called Apocalypse, which is essentially a, a, a quote-unquote interpretation of the book of Revelation, although he would scoff at that because he didn't actually agree that you could interpret a text in that way. But in that little book, which he wrote in, in his last months alive, um, he, he, he talks at one point and I, I, I grabbed it off the shelf this morning because the passage is so telling to me. And it's funny because the first time I read it, I didn't understand it until later. He writes, um, he's writing about the sun, S U N. Um, and he's talking about, well, do, can I, can you indulge me and let me read, oh, I'll read please, part of this paragraph. please, please, um, so He talks about, let me see if I go back to the beginning of this, he says, some of the great images of the apocalypse move us to strange depths and to a strange wild fluttering of freedom, of true freedom, really an escape to somewhere, not an escape to nowhere, an escape from the tight little cage of our universe, tight in spite of all the astronomers' vast and unthinkable stretches of space, tight because it is only a continuous extension, a dreary on and on without any meaning an escape from this into the vital cosmos to a sun who has a great wild life and who looks back at us for strength or withering marvelous as he goes his way who says the sun cannot speak to me the sun has a great blazing consciousness and i have a little blazing consciousness when i can strip myself of the trash of personal feelings and ideas and get down to my naked sun self then the sun and I can commune by the hour, the blazing interchange, and he gives me life, sun life, and I send him a little new brightness from the world of the bright blood. But the great sun, like an angry dragon, hater of the nervous and personal consciousness in us, as all these modern sunbathers must realize, for they become disintegrated by the very sun that bronzes them. But the sun, like a lion, loves the bright red blood of life, And can give it an infinite enrichment if we know how to receive it but we don't we have lost the Sun and he only falls on us and destroys us decomposing something in us the dragon of destruction instead of the life bringer and that line we have lost the Sun Um, I have an underlined an asterisk to my text from when I first read this um, oh my gosh 40 years ago that phrase always stuck with me. We've lost we've lost our sun. And I remember when I first read it, I thought it was a significant line. I underlined it and put an asterisk next to it, but I didn't understand what it was until years later when I realized that what he means by that is we've lost our center. Mm. The sun is the center of the universe. We've lost our center. Right? In addition to its other meanings in this text but we've lost our center we've lost i mean it, it reminds me of the yates poem you know the center cannot hold right um and i think that that's the sense that he had as he was as he was dying as he was writing this that we've we've lost our our hold on things um and as i say i mean he's dying in 1930 so writing this right before um the rise of of nazism and and then world war Two, um so it, it's just it's, it's an incredible little book apocalypse um which i i highly recommend um really a great book
0: yeah that's a beautiful passage right there and you can see a lot of the emotion and a lot of thinking in fact those may be some of the insights that come to one only when you're on your deathbed
1: it possibly is you're right you're right Um, But he but you know these are things that he was concerned with his whole life I mean, you know, yes his fiction is great. His poetry is 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 great In fact, he he seemed to consider himself a poet more than a novelist Um, But it's his nonfiction the essays uh, Which to me just are so incredibly insightful Um, 1928 two years before he dies he writes an essay called we need one another um, and it's 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 a great piece it's a short little four or five page essay and he argues here that men need women and women need men now let's put aside the, the the gender issues with that we deal with today but just this sense that we are in a constant kind of battle of the sexies sexes but as he says here i mean ultimately we need one another we just we do. Um, and he, he argues against here the um, what he calls the religions of overweening individualism. Right. This wow. this this sense that we are all <laughs> individuals and we can all make it on our own and be independent. And he says, you know what? That's really a lot of crap. We need one another.
0: Yeah, that speaks volumes of if you just play that out this world of individual projects that we think we may be in an entrepreneurial world. It just, the center can't hold. I mean, it goes right back to the, to the apocalypse.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's just, it's incredible how to me, he, 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 he's looking forward and he sees what's coming and he's almost warning us about it. And of course, you know, it was a warning that, in, in many ways, went unheeded. I mean, he was he was close friends with Aldous Huxley, Brave uh, New World. Um, Huxley visited him in New Mexico once he settled there at the end of his life, and um, their connection itself is 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 kind of interesting. I I, I don't know enough about it to, to say anything, but of course, Brave New World not written until some years later. But um, it would be interesting to 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 know if there was any kind of discussion about, about that. Um, you know, I, 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 mentioned in the book on sin, um, things like the, the opening of the, the, the movie metropolis, right. With the, the robots walking and just, just the sense that we are becoming more robotic as human beings, as technology strips away our humanity. And without explicitly saying that, I think that's what Lawrence is is telling us. He's warning us about that.
0: Yeah. I I think I read somewhere that on his deathbed, it was Aldous's wife, Maria, that was cradling his head, and he said something to the effect of, Maria, Maria, don't let me die. Interesting mm-hmm. to think about the closeness of such literary giants towards the end of their career.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I'm always surprised when, when you find out about the, these intersections and these Said, oh, I, I had no idea that they, you know, were that close and, and knew each other that well. Um, in fact, I th- it was, I think it was Ian e. Forster, the, the, uh, the novelist, author of uh, a Room with a View, who um, wrote a, an obituary of Lawrence when he died, one of the only obituaries that was really kind of praising Lawrence. He was much disparaged at that point in his life, and um, I think Forrester claimed that he was one of the greatest novelists of the period, um, right. if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, it's it it blows my mind to think about the work ethic that he could have if he if he's played with tuberculosis or if he's always been you know in a situation where he wasn't in the best health, but to put out that much and then even some paintings too. I I think I read somewhere yeah. that towards the end of his life, he had thought about becoming more of a painter, even having some, some paintings seized. Yeah. Is that, what do he you did know about that part?
1: And, 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 and some of his paintings were shown um, and have become important pieces. But, um, you know, just to, to give you an indication of that, you, you say, you know, the work ethic, but also just the fact that having spent so much of his life being physically ill... Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the symbol that he adopted at the end of his life was the Phoenix um, and in fact the Phoenix is on his tombstone um, and and the Phoenix the bird which is consumed but then is reborn and it's almost that that sense that that's what he was doing over and over in his life is is he would constantly he would get so sick that it seemed like he was gonna just die that was gonna be the end of it and then all of a sudden he would just be reborn and continue working, Um, and continue, continue, you know, we say continue working, he, I'm not sure he looked at it as work, I'm sure that he looked at it as being creative, and he needed to do that, right, he had to do that, and um, I think it's interesting that a lot of that comes through in the travel literature that he wrote as he traveled, where he would write about these places. And then, and then you know, something that we've lost today, which is letter writing, I mean, his letters. Mm. Um, the letters are just amazing to all kinds of people and from all kinds of people. Um, in fact, Huxley, I think, edited the first volume of his letters after he died. Um, it, it's just, you know, the letter writing, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I try to do it, but, it's hard these days, isn't it? I mean, especially with email. Um, but there is something about writing letters yeah. that is quite different. There was a, a an article in the New York Times on Sunday that I was just reading about um, this big cache of stuff that's been discovered of Hemingway's that, that they're going to, I guess, is going to be eventually on display. And th- they include things like letters and, and personal effects. And th- that kind of stuff is just, um, it tells us about, who people are in ways that we, otherwise I don't think we would know. You know, we get more of an inner, inner life in letters.
0: Yeah. There's sort of an intimacy there that you would never see unless that came out. And it, there are, you know, you look at the, the, like Boswell or even Christopher Hitchens, like these people published all their letters towards the end. And in, and in a way, I think it's obtuse that we don't have more of it because you only get to see this commercialization. You only get to see this one little slice and way too often. And I think even even with D.H. Lawrence, people may have mistaken the people he wrote about as him. You know, I think that happens a lot to, authors. Oh, you sure. get to read their letters. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I I think that's often the mistake. Right. I mean, it's the mistake that I have had with students over over the years where you know they'll read and 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 think that oh the main character is the author yeah. um you know and that i mean in some cases that's true but it, in in most it is not um, you know we we tend to believe that every author's first novel is autobiographical um, and for whether that's true or not i mean it, it seems to ring true in a lot of cases but as you go through Lawrence's uh, fiction, um, there are characters that certainly show up who resemble real people. Um, you know, people that 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 either are are famous or famous authors or famous figures in the art world, um, with whom he had had contact, and then um, seems to clearly base a character on. But I, I think you know it's interesting because for a guy who was so concerned about losing touch with other people, his, his dream was to, as as I read in that, that letter from 1915 to leave this world and go and found this little colony where, you know, there would, people would live, but it would be simple and, and it would be apart from, from civilization with only a few people. Um, this kind of escape that he had he had yearned for, which I think he looked for first in in walking through Europe with Frida, and then when they moved to New Mexico to Taos.
0: You know, it now that you say that, as I begin thinking about him wanting to start a colony, and then I begin thinking about Aldous Huxley, I think of the book The Island, you know, where all this talks about this incredible Island where people are raised in a way that is simple, but is meaningful. And the whole time there's this underlying problem of oil where like, they, you know, part of the Island is thinking about becoming a consumer based right. place. That seems like that book may have been influenced by D.H. Lawrence. If you think it, about it, it may
1: have, um, I, you know, I mean the, the, the whole, Concept of course of, of living in a utopia is nothing new, right? Um, you know Of creating this kind of utopian Community, um, I think people still yearn for that today I mean, that's 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 what's behind so many of the the, the kinds of of Religious cults that we talked about last time right is is creating this utopian community That is apart from the rest of the, the horrible world um, but know the nature of utopia is that it can't be real um i mean that's just inherent in what a utopia is it's 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 not real um and and oftentimes if you try to create that kind of a of a society the the flaws will will just kill you um you know once they pop up as you say i mean you know on the island. You know, you've got the, the oil, right? Uh, right? You know, and ultimately that drives people's greed, and and you know, I want to make money, and that trumps no no pun intended um, everything else. It's in it's an interesting relationship they have
0: to sex in 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 there. Like if you look at Aldous Huxley's book The Island, there seems to be people that treat love and see love in a similar way that maybe D.H. Lawrence was trying to talk about in some of his books.
1: Yeah, possibly. I mean, it, it, it's... it's I, I think that the relationship between men and women is something which has an interesting history in the literature like Huxley, like Orwell, mm-hmm. you know, the, those modern novelists who are writing about the effects of technology and government on our lives and it 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 often creates interesting um relationships you know the kinds of relationships that you often see in lawrence's novels are and i'm trying to think about the right way to describe them they seem to me to be more pure Hmm. um they're pure and they're more authentic and they're and they're of because of the people that he's writing about who are largely working class um it's just it's a different mindset and it's it tends to be more primal Mm. and more primitive and i don't mean that in a pejorative way um and 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 i think that's much of what lawrence is looking at i mean in that essay we need one another he even he even talks about that that primal kind of connection that we have with with, with each other.
0: I read w- one of the critics that was talking about his book on sons and lovers. He talks about how he, he has multiple relationships and in one of them he can have sex without love and, and then in another he can have love without sex. And the critic had said something that it's, it appears the character he's writing about is psycholog- psychologically damaged. The, Paul, the character Paul uh, paul Murrell. Murrell. yep paul thank you and he says that he can have a spiritual relationship without sex and a sexual relationship without spirit and he struggles to integrate them. i thought that was a pretty interesting point to bring up
1: yeah no i and i think that that that's that's largely true i mean in 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 paul morrell that that's the fact throughout the throughout the novel but the the, the image at the end of the of the end of of the rainbow and and it follows a lot of the same characters show up in some of the different novels um the image that shows up and i wish i'd brought my copy of the rainbow in today <laughs> um, the closing passage is just incredible i mean there's there's essentially destruction the the, the world of these characters is destroyed but the last image that he gives you in the novel is the image of the the rainbow. And he says that and the, and the rainbow stood on the earth. It's it's out of the Genesis text after the flood. Um, that even though everything's been destroyed, here's the promise that something else is coming and it's good.
0: Man, it's so deep to think about like we, we're back to symbols, like we, we like yeah. we often get back to. <laughs> You know, but you think of the symbol of the phoenix and then this idea of love and sex and then destruction. And it's, it's just such like a rebirth. You know, it's maybe it's me always seeing these. Maybe that says something about me. But, <laughs> you know, it just seems like I keep seeing these symbols everywhere. And, and when I think about it, I, I can almost see the plight of every man or maybe even every woman where can you have these relationships, passionate relationships without, you know, without spirituality and can you have this other one without sex it's it's just uh, such a great concept that maybe more people should be thinking about these things and there would be a lot more personal growth
1: yeah well it it follows with what we were talking about with mystics right and mysticism (laughs) and and the the divide between the spiritual and the physical right Mm. it is is as human beings we are physical in nature we have a spiritual side to us. And of course there's a distinction between physical lust and spiritual love. Um, I don't know if you can have spiritual lust. I wonder. Mm. Um, And, 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 you know, but it's, it's the fact of the matter is that again, to quote Lauren, we need one another, right? I mean, if we don't have that, then the species ends. Um, So we have to have that to some degree now. Can you have physical love without? Spiritual love to be sure right. Can you can you have lust and not have love? Of course Um, And that's that's the problem of of the sin of lust Right is that it is purely driven by the carnal nature and there's nothing of the the spirit that's involved there Um, But by the same token, can you have spiritual love without the physical? Um, now many of course in the the in the religious history would argue that you could um the problem with that is you run into you know as we mentioned once before you run into the problem of the essenes the guys who wrote the dead sea scrolls who took vows of chastity that was the end of the essenes um, you know so i it, it, we're constantly experiencing this experiencing this kind of conflict we want to be spirit we want to get back to being spirit and we're stuck in these physical beings. And it and for some of us, I think, um, it's a frustrating kind of existence to try to strive to be pure spirit, pure intellect, but have the 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 dirtiness of of physical living getting in the way.
0: Yeah, that call, that emotional, call, that lustful feeling and potential excitement of breaking a covenant that calls to you. And maybe that's why some, like, sometimes I think that that is why the heat of passion burns so hot is that you know what you're doing is wrong and you can't, it's this animalistic drive to this other person that just calls to your spirit that just, wow, you know, like you just burning hot with fire and, but you know, you're ruining something beautiful but that's the animalistic side to us. And like, there's so many different, so much different literature that talks about, I think even Marcus Aurelius talks about how he damns himself for having this animalistic passion and he wishes he didn't have it, but he does. And right, it's just, it's just this foundation. And I think that that is something that D.H. Lawrence calls to in his books, be it, you know, Lady Chatterley or Sons and Lovers, or how, even going deep into his family history, like in the rainbow yeah. that you talk about, like I, it's such a passionate thing that no matter where we are on the spectrum of human evolution, it still burns inside us and each individual seems to be called to it.
1: Yeah. Well that that animalistic tendency, as you as you mentioned, I mean, reflects a, a lack of control, right? A lack of self control. And 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 as human beings, we don't like that. We like to be in control. And we see animals when we talk about them as being as not having control. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, an animal doesn't necessarily have rational control over what it's doing. But we, of course, are animals. We're human animals. And we forget that part of it. We forget that we have that part of us that is an animal. Um, you know, I, I, when I used to teach philosophy and we would look at at um, work of Peter Singer, the great animal uh, ethicist, Um who was the one who talked about, you know, we need to talk about animals and human animals because we are animals. We're human animals. And, and the fact that there is still an animal part of us that does things and, and seems to lack that kind of control, which makes us, as you say, nervous and maybe feeling guilty because we know we shouldn't be doing something, but, you know, I I mean, and we experience this with anything, right? I mean, it's not just, sexual passion, but it's, it's, you know, eating, drinking, whatever, any of these things that we do to excess, um, we oftentimes will know that what we're doing is, is quote unquote wrong. um, And yet we don't seem to be able to be able to control not doing it um, because that's the animal part of us that's driving that. Um, if it were all about the the rational human part of us, we would be living different existences. And that's what I think that's why I think it's such a struggle for so many of the the religious writers and again going back to the mystics struggling with that. Um, they want to live that spiritual existence. but the physical is always there nagging at them saying, you know, you gotta eat dinner. Like I don't want to eat dinner. I want to spend my time in you know contemplation and prayer, but you got to eat because you're a physical being, and physical being needs that that kind of nourishment. Um, and so we see folks who, oh, I mean, and it's still we still have cases of it today where uh, devout, devout Catholics will um, attempt to go through extreme fasts in which the only thing that they consume is is the communion wafer and the wine um, and they you know with the uh, under with the understanding that because of transubstantiation that's going to be able to sustain you but of course in in almost all cases it can't you're not just not getting enough nourishment from a, a biological perspective your spiritual nourishment may be there but right. your physical, biological nourishment is lacking.
0: It's, it's, it's. I'm not sure the right words to use. It's, it's somehow coming to grips with the the human animal, I guess, as is, is yeah. one way to do it. This here's a, here is something for you, uh, David from Benjamin George. He says, I don't think it has to be an act of losing control. But it is something we must figure out how to balance. Do you think? Well, that yeah, we can to be sure,
1: it? to be sure. I mean, and that, and that's that's how the mystics come up with the, the middle way, right? I mean, you, you've got it. You've got to find that balance. You've got to find the middle way. But you know, as as the Upanishads say, you know, about about the razor's edge, right? I mean, it. You know, the line between love and hate, it's it's difficult to walk. Um, it's 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 not a clear cut division there's no clear cut line to walk and um the act of losing control i think you know that balance is tough i mean there's a there's a reason why when people look at at the balance beam that gymnasts walk on they say oh my gosh how do you do that because it's it's very narrow and i think that that balance is narrow for us do you think if you were going to like teach a class like you could
0: pr- you could give an idea of that balance beam by putting up two opposing views of books. Like maybe you could put up, um, D.H. Lawrence, Lady Chatterley and then have some sort of Thomas Aquinas or something like that. But would you, do you think it's possible to maybe begin an education of balance at a younger age by getting kids to lead, read literature? And if so, what books would you put against each other?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, Certainly, I think it's possible. Um, it's increasingly difficult in our culture because we're removing literature from most of the <laughs> curriculum, never mind for young kids, but even in the high school. Um, I mean, you know, it, the easy place to start, obviously, is to have him read Shakespeare. Um, because, you know, in some sense, it's all in Shakespeare. Um, I mean, he covers, he seems to cover it all. Uh, but, I mean, you know, if you want to want to go to one specific text, I mean, you know, I would look at Hamlet um uh, uh everything is in that play but i mean let's just look at the character of hamlet himself who is really struggling with finding that balance he's enraged that his father is dead and then he ultimately finds out was murdered by his uncle and he's at the same time enraged that his mother has remarried said uncle and he is driven to revenge By the ghost of his father who comes back and asks him to take that revenge but constantly nagging at hamlet throughout the entire play is he knows in his heart that murder is wrong and so he's all i mean that's the reason for you know what ts Eliot called hamlet's delay right numerous times in the play he has the chance to kill claudius and he doesn't Uh, now some people look at that as a failure of character I don't necessarily look at it that way i look at that as that's a real human being who is really struggling between a commitment that he's made to his dead father to avenge his death and the fact that he knows murder is wrong so finding that balance i mean there's a a great illustration of how you do that now you know maybe it's not the greatest illustration of course because it doesn't end up too well um you know, it, it, I think learning lessons that way and learning lessons through literature as a young person can be very helpful. Now, I say that fully aware that growing up as a kid, I barely read any literature. And through high school, I didn't like reading literature. Although I do recall that the, the, the first text that really affected me in a strong way Was when in I believe it was the eighth grade we read Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter Hmm. um, Which is about some pretty serious heavy issues about adultery and and punishment and sin And I was very struck by that now eighth grade. I was what 13. So um, You know, I I think if we expose uh, Children to to some of these great Literary tales, I mean that they really do teach us that lesson about finding that middle way um, finding that balance as benjamin says there
0: yeah yeah i agree i i think that kids can understand a lot more than we give them credit for and if we show them things like yeah
1: yeah i mean i i I was before we came on the air i'm not a bash to be to tell you I, I it's been a kind of a rough day and I was watching Looney Tunes old Looney Tunes <laughs> cartoons and it just it makes me think of that because when they renewed the, the license for the Looney Tune cartoons in the 1990s they removed a lot of the so-called violent scenes because oh my god we can't show this to children you know now I grew up watching Looney Tunes I never was under the impression that if you hit somebody over the head with an anvil he got up like an accordion <laughs> and walked away. I wasn't stupid, and you know I think we do not give kids enough credit these days um, to be smart and to understand the way things work, and we're too worried about insulating them from the big bad world, which of course only seems to get bigger and, and badder by the day.
0: In my my neighborhood, that was my sole exposure to classical music. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Of course. Yeah. And it's kind of a tragedy. Like you see, you hear this beautiful score and then all of a sudden someone runs into a wall or, you know, it's
1: yeah. in yeah. some
0: ways it it's, it's poetry in motion.
1: It is. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I think we you and I probably learned a hell of a lot from watching Looney Tunes.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: not, absolutely. not just our first lesson on classical music, but probably other things as well. Opera.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, and then it's interesting. If you just take a look back at some of the cartoons back in the day, like, how about Popeye? He's like, he's, he's, here's this immigrant guy that comes over that doesn't speak English very well, you know, and he's kind of a small yep. guy. And
1: yep. yep. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of those, those, those early, I mean, the, the, the early, the, the Looney Tunes cartoons in particular, I mean, I, I'm just really struck by, especially if you watch the ones that were produced, um, you know, during, during World War II and then into the 50s. Um, some of them are making some pretty, significant social comments that i think are kind of interesting um i used to teach a course on on um on the holocaust on and we would look at some of the the now banned cartoons that were made during world war ii and, and they're really quite interesting i mean it's it's you know i think i think some people dismiss them a little bit too readily the same way they dismiss now graphic novels um and think that they're just you know it's just comic books but more than
0: that, <laughs> yeah. It was in. I was having a conversation with some people a week ago, and we thought it was pretty interesting how you know this world of comic books seems to be that which has taken over the entirety of the movie industry. And you know, I'm not sure what that says about our society. On one level, yeah. we want this hero, but on another well, one, we're just kind of Pinocchio, yeah,
1: yeah. It's you know, stu- it, it's it's our our desperate need for superheroes. Um and I think you're right. I mean, you know, the the way that that has taken over, it seems the entire movie industry these days is just incredible. Um but I think it is in many ways our, our incredible need for for heroes and and superheroes. And if if you look at the way that that tracks along with the the the, the track of history after 9/11, definitely makes sense. Um, you know, th- this, this feeling that we are helpless and the only, a superhero could save us.
0: Guys, dangerous to think about what that can bring forth. You know, it, it just seems like a march towards authoritarianism.
1: Well, and <laughs> that seems like where we're going, doesn't it? <laughs> um, um, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's really disturbing and, and it has uh potential just calamitous results hopefully it will hopefully it will turn around but uh we don't seem to be going in the right direction at the moment that's for sure
0: yeah i wonder if there are some new dh lawrences out there that are beginning in times like this where it seems like the the night is dark it's i think there's times when a new sun, you know, just, we were just talking about the sun. Like Mm. maybe there's a new class of authors. Maybe there's a new class of experimental people coming up and writing in a way that is going to influence people or spark a new generation to think in a way that is different. And I could see how the younger people today could be looking at the older people. Like you guys are so afraid of everything. Like what's your problem? Mm -hmm. Like I can see new authors being born. Do you see some hope for that in, in,
1: I mean there's a lot of great stuff being written and being published um i think the 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 potential problem at the moment is because of the internet there's almost too much mm. and it's difficult to, to to sort through and to and to look at what might be considered the new dh lawrence and and the you know the, the great new novelist i mean there are a few people contemporaries who i read regularly but um you know most often I'm going back to, to the older ones um, and looking for inspiration there. But I mean, you know, recently I've been reading uh, a lot of Matt Haig um, and, and he, uh, his book, the midnight library is his most recent novel. He's a good novelist. Um, You know, is he writing about, you know, incredible relationships the way that, that somebody like a DH Lawrence did? Not really. Um, You know, I'm not sure that, that, Young writers. I'm not sure that young writers can are, can do that yet. I, I mean, I know that's that's a a nasty thing to say and a controversial thing to say because Lawrence, of course, when he was writing, he, he started out. He was young. I mean, he died at 44, so um, look what he accomplished by then. But of course, um, I, I think 44 in 1930 is different than 44 in. 2022 um and and uh, just the 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 breadth of experience that he had by that age I, i don't know anybody who's who's gone through that today um i just i just don't see it in the same way
0: yeah it seems like a lot of the great literature was was you know, inspired by very difficult times. And there's the saying yeah. that says difficult times make hard men and easy times make weak men.
1: Well, and 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 to to some degree, we are seeing some of that. Today. I mean, it, it, look at Margaret Atwood's work. I mean, you know, she has done, you know, in, in, has an incredible canon. Um, and it's not just The Handmaid's Tale, which gets all the press. Um, you know, I mean, read her other work. It's really quite brilliant. Um, and a lot of that comes out of what we're the kind of, Hardship that we're talking about the kind of struggle Um a lot of it on a on the level of just our, our the survival of our culture um, and and I think that the the best writers Will be writing about that In the coming decades, you know, i'm thinking about about the kinds of work that came out of the turn of the the 20th century from folks like I mean lawrence sinclair lewis um, you know just uh, writing about the ways in which the world was significantly changing just right under their feet and the fear that they had about that and the the, the warnings that they were throwing out about that um, and I, I I think we're we're maybe back to that now. I, I'm not sure how that switch has happened it's it's uh it's troubling
0: and in, in some of the classes, that maybe you have taught or people in your circle may have taught, do they teach about the power in which literature or writing can influence the world?
1: Um, explicitly? No. Um, I think that as, as, as social justice movements have moved forward and that is now becoming more and more a part of, of literary criticism um, we're starting to see it um, but it's it's relatively new um, I would say that probably the 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 earliest incarnation of it for me at least would have been eco criticism mm. um, and seeing it there um, but I do think now we're starting to become more aware of it because as I say of, of social justice um, and that being coming part of the curriculum
0: it's in today's world. It, it almost seems like if you want to write a book that's different, then you would write a book that doesn't have social justice in it.
1: You yeah, know? I mean, sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean certainly mm-hmm. there there do seem to be too many uh, cookie cutters, right? <laughs> um, there kind of you know, is. It, 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 it it's a <clears> when <throat> romance uh, way of writing mm-hmm. fiction, um, where you just uh, write by a by a by a paradigm and just use this template. Um, yeah, and that's. You know, I mean, I've always felt, and I mean, and I'm not unusual in saying this. I mean, you know, the greatest books that I've read are the ones where you turn the page and you're stunned. Um, You're like, oh, my God, I I didn't see that coming. Um, I remember taking a class um, decades ago with the the writer Lawrence Block. Um, Lawrence Block was a a mystery writer. And he wrote, oh, my God, I don't know how many mysteries. And they were pretty formulaic. But he used to say that... um, i know that i've got the plot right when my main character opens up a door and even i don't know what's on the other side and that's kind of when you know you're there as a writer
0: man that's that speaks volumes of of your ability to write if you can make that a make that a reality
1: yeah i mean your characters become so real that that you just don't even know what's happening um until until it happens
0: yeah that that that's that fine line between when you're breaking reality like you're probably kind of a in and you're, you're probably kind of a <clears throat> difficult to be around if you're stuck between those two realities well, in the i imagine so
1: yeah and that's why people i mean usually fiction writers will go into that place and and it has to be also a physical place where you're just away from everybody else because you're living with those characters um, you know, I, 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 I've attempted it and I've never been successful. So I, I've yet to finish a novel, uh, that I, that I've written, although I certainly have tried. Yeah.
0: I, I always remember, uh, Philip K. Dick and how he thought that like all were reality was pasted on to Rome and like, you know, it's just so those are almost as good as all the novels is that a yeah. way that they looked at the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely.
0: Well, I, I, um, I wanted, I wrote down this one last piece that uh, I thought was a good way for it to to leave on. Excuse my stuttering. In one of his poems, Shadows, D.H. Lawrence says in the finishing sentences, Oh, build your ship of death. Oh, build it for you will need it for the voyage of oblivion awaits you. Like just so beautiful to think about that. And I think that was one of the last poems he read before he wrote, before he died. Mm. Amazing the insight that one can have, the clarity one can have when it seems that everything is dark around you.
1: Yeah, no, to be sure, and to and to try to find light there. Yeah, right? I mean that that the phoenix, right?
0: Yes, yes. The symbolism, the phoenix. Doctor David Solomon, I love talking to you, and I feel like the time goes way too fast, I'm like we just start getting into these awesome things. But <laughs> I, I, I'm hopeful that people find it as enjoyable as we do. And I hope before- so. Yeah. Before we leave, would you be so kind as to remind people what you have coming up, where people can find you and what you're excited sure. about?
1: So my uh, my website is uh, David A. Solomon, S-A-L-O-M-O-N dot com. And you can find my books there and links to my blog and uh, all my my media appearances and my consulting and all of, all the stuff that I that takes up too much time. Um, working on a new book, uh, working on a new book with my wife on angels and demons and pop culture, which we hope will be out next year, um, and working on a new blog post, which I hope will be out uh, next week. Um, so perhaps by the time we we chat again, George, um, still working on it, so I'm not not going to reveal what it is yet. <laughs> um, and excited about fall, um, starting here in Virginia. And uh, the fact that I am uh, organizing a new study abroad trip with my students for next summer to go to London, and uh, begun signing up students who seem really interested. We're going to be uh, going to museums and historic sites in London for 19 days, and they seem really charged about that as well as I and I am as well. So,
0: well, I'm excited to hear it. And for everybody that's listening to this, I think you should definitely go to David's site. If you want to reach out to him, his information is there. If your kids are becoming of an age where they want to learn from someone who I think is a master, you should be looking at this man right here, Mr. David Solomon. And um, I hope more people reach out to you. And I know that we'll be talking more on Tuesdays. And I really look forward to our conversations. I really enjoy them. So thank you for spending some time with me. I
1: I think this is one of the few podcasts that probably exists in which in one hour we talked about D.H. Lawrence, Shakespeare's Hamlet, and Looney Tunes—all in the same of <laughs> hours. So there you go. What well, where else? Could,
0: where else would you want to go? I mean, I, it's I, all I, here.
1: It's all here. It's all here.
0: <laughs> well, that's what we got for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for your time. Aloha.